goodnewsministriesofgnm.org. It's the Catholic place for growing your faith. Good News Ministries will provide you with faith-building reflections, virtual retreats, prayer resources, and lots more. All of it is free. Visit gnm.org today. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com for faith, fellowship, and love. This is the Padua Podcast Network. It's never just about you and your life. It's also about all those you're going to impact. And the impact it may be one you don't even see. And we're going to impact them one way or another. Do we want to be like Jane, leading them to Christ? Or like Angelique, leading them off a cliff? Thriving in the Trenches. It's the podcast where you will hear stories from real people with real purpose. All for a God who loves us with a real love. The Trenches. Where life isn't always easy, but it is a place for women to be encouraged and equipped to uniquely and universally serve Christ in their feminine vocation. So, together, let's go deeper in our faith in God, in His church, and in our friendships. You are welcome here. Welcome to Thriving in the Trenches podcast. This is Becky Carter, and I am your host. Hello there. Hope all of you are doing super well, super awesome. Hello to fall and the, uh, wow, we're, we're closing in another year, which is crazy uh, to think soon it will be Thanksgiving and Christmas and we'll be starting all over. Um, but I don't want to jump there too far, too quickly um, and just really enjoy every day as it comes. But um, I, I do hope you're doing well and, and adjusting to new school year and, and new rhythms and schedules and sports. And hopefully you are getting some sleep and, and resting and enjoying your family and growing in your faith. So um, I want to introduce um, my uh, guest for this next episode or this particular episode. And her name is Colleen Carol Campbell. If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you know that I have uh, posted quite a bit about reading this book and how much her words are wrecking my world. And it's wrecking in a really good way. Uh, not just her words, but the words of St. Francis de Sales um, and uh, St. Jane de Chantel and even a heretic and how not let's let's not be the heretic is really the moral of the story. Um, Colleen does a really beautiful job of sharing her heart, her journey, and, and she admits her journey is still continuing and how the Lord is helping her to recover from perfectionism. And I won't go into to the details of the conversation because I'm going to leave it here in just a second. But um, this this really is an important topic. And I bet we all have a little bit 
a spiritual perfection in us. And it in and it's distorting our view of the Lord, uh, God, the Father who loves us deeply, and it distorts how we respond to Him, to others, and ourselves. And really what that does to those around us um, and, and, our, and ourselves. So I look forward to sharing this uh, conversation with you, but I want to tell you a little bit about Colleen. She's an award-winning author in print and broadcast journalist. She's a formal presidential speechwriter. Yeah, her bio is not lightweight, girls and boys. I know the boys are out there. Her books include her critically acclaimed journalistic study, The New Faithful, and spiritual memoir, My Sisters the Saints, which won two national awards and has been published in five languages. Colleen has written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Christianity Today, America, and National Review. She's appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, ABC News, PBS, NPR, and EWTN, where she hosted her own television and radio shows for eight years. A former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. We should have talked about that on our little episode a little more. An editorial writer and uh, op-ed columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Colleen is the recipient of two honorary doctorates and numerous other awards and fellowships for her work. She speaks to audiences across North America and Europe when she's not home enjoying her husband and their four children whom she homeschools. Now, that is quite a bio, and a lot of times when I'm going to interview someone with that lengthy, hefty of a list of accomplishments, I get a little nervous, but I had the pleasure of listening to Colleen uh, read her book through Audible, and it's just delightful, and she's so relatable and real, just like you and me, so... I hope you enjoy the conversation. Colleen, welcome to Thriving in the Trenches podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Colleen, um, when I received your book to do a little book review, um, to be honest, I had heard of your book, uh, My Sisters the Saints. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I hadn't had a chance to read it. But the title of this new book really caught my attention. So I put it on my shelf and I said, I'm going, said, to, read going to read that one. That one. Um, <laughs> but before we really get started and in digging into that book, what I'd love to do is I always like my guests to kind of share a little bit about themselves. I call it Beyond the Bio. And um, sure. so uh, if you'll just take a little bit and and introduce yourself to my listeners. Sure. Well, I'm a cradle Catholic. I grew up in a, a pretty devout home. My parents were very um, into their faith, and it was a big part of their lives. I, uh, and I grew up kind of all over the place. So I was born outside of Boston. I lived all over the country growing up, you know, a few years here, a few years there, mostly due to my dad's job and the nature of it. And so um, not in the military, but similar experience maybe to a lot of <laughs> military kids and uh, moved all over, graduated from high school in Colorado Springs, went to college at Marquette University in Milwaukee, where my mom's whole side of the family is from Green Bay, go pack. So uh, we have that. And then I spent uh, four years at Marquette and right after that launched into a career in journalism. I was always interested in writing 
uh, drawing and acting. Those were kind of my three passions other than my faith. And um, anyway, uh, started my journalism career. And we kind of talked about that, I'm sure, in my uh, intro, you know, the newspapers and books and all of that stuff. Um, in terms of my faith journey, I was pretty into my faith for a long time. Again, you know, credit due to my parents, you know, making that a big part of my life. But I would say, um, and particularly with the saints, I sort of, you know, started to see the saints as these goody two-shoes I couldn't relate to around my adolescent years. And especially in college is when I sort of drifted. I didn't stop going to mass. I was always kind of checking the boxes and, and doing the, doing what I thought I had to do. But it really wasn't um, front and center for me during my college years. I was much more interested in um, chasing success and having a good time. And it was at the end of my college years, and I write about this in my memoir, My Sisters, the Saints, where I really started to feel this inner emptiness and this longing for God and this recognition that whatever I was trying to do, everything the world was telling me to do was leaving me dry and empty and it wasn't enough. And that search that kind of began out of that emptiness, um, my dad around that same time gave me a copy of Marcelo Clare's uh, Life of Teresa of Avila. And I was just captivated, captivated by her because again, I had kind of dismissed the saints as goody goodies, didn't know why my parents were always so into them and had all these bookshelves bursting with stories of them. And then I discovered this Teresa of Avila, who was this social butterfly who spent the first basically 40 years of her life pulled back and forth between the world and God. Even as she was in the convent, she was, you know, uh, flirtatious. In those days, the convent, at least before she reformed, it was kind of a place for spoiled socialites sometimes. <laughs> and she was sort of one of those. And, you know, she was struggling with all these, you know, sins, little and big and vanity and all the rest of it. And, um, she has this big conversion where she suddenly, you know, discovers how she can direct all of that passion and fire that she has inside of her toward God, because he's the one who put it there. And that really captivated me. And I saw for the first time a saint I could really relate to who I, I could see where all of these questions I had and all of this sort of fire inside of me and all, all of these characteristics I had could be, could be oriented towards something bigger than just, um, myself, my own success or my own happiness. And so that journey that began there took a lot of twists and turns, didn't like pull it all together overnight, still don't have it all together, but uh, went on from there. And my sisters, the saints gets into the details of that journey, which includes, um, you know, my father's long battle with Alzheimer's disease, which had a profound impact on me and, and drew me closer to God and my own battle with infertility. My husband and I um, spent the first years of our marriage really longing for children and not able to have them. And fast forward to now, I have uh, four little ones. I've been blessed um, and I, I'm homeschooling them. So I'm with them a lot and I'm still writing books. I'm no longer as active in the news media as I was. That was my life for many years, you know, a newspaper, commentary, TV, radio, all of it. And I've really stepped back from that so that I can focus um, both on my kids, but also on, on this deeper writing that I feel I can only do through books. And so um, it's kind of hard to separate for me my career journey from my faith journey, because for so many years now, my faith has been such a huge part of what I do all day, um, not just with my kids, but also with my writing. But that would be the Cliff Notes version, I guess. That's awesome. Now, and how old are your children? You have twins. Yeah, I have nine-year-old twins and then a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. So I, I, I 
you know, prayed and longed four years for babies. And then I got four babies in four years. So, you know, God has a sense of humor, I think. (laughs) Right. It's that that proverbial, be careful what you ask for. (laughs) No, I that's that's wonderful. So, yes, you you truly are still right in the thick of it. Um, Sounds like everybody is probably dressing themselves and brushing their own teeth. So that's good. Yeah, with some prodding, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. um, okay, well, if you're ready, I'd I'd love to just jump right into the book. Sure. Um, I felt like um, a really good place to start is just to quote you, and I'm sure this will just send you off on. <laughs> you ready? <laughs> sure. I wonder if you can pick which quote I'm going to. <laughs> um, okay, so. You ask, see if this pattern sounds familiar. You push yourself too hard or rush too much and make mistakes as a result. Then you beat yourself up for pushing too hard and rushing too much and making too many mistakes. All of which makes you feel worse, leading to more pushing and more punishing and more mistakes. I read that and I thought, oh, how does she know me so well? <laughs> yeah, we we all struggle with this, don't we? You know, if if it gives us any comfort, uh, Francis de Sales wrote something similar hundreds of years ago. He talked about um, when we become angry at ourselves for having been angry, and then we get angry that we got angry that we got <laughs> it goes on and on. This is not a new problem, and I take great comfort in that. I mean, that was part of the inspiration for me in writing this book is. Uh, and the reason that I wove the stories of the saints all through the heart of perfection is, A, I love the saints, but B, what I love about them is they remind me that I do not have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to coping with my spiritual or any other problems, because pretty much anything we stumble upon, in some form or another, there's a saint who dealt with it before us. And since these are the ones who ran the race and finished well, I think we can learn a lot from them. And so um, I took great comfort when I discovered that that pattern that I described wasn't unique to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, okay, so so here is my confession for uh, my imperfection. And so I really wanted to read the whole book, but I'm going to have to say I couldn't get past chapter three. I, I, I read it. I read the first two chapters once and then I thought I got to get audible or I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to get any further so I listened to them and then I went back and I'm still cherry picking out of the first three chapters <laughs> so, so I, I, I can't tell you how the story ends but I can tell you how the first three chapters go and they're just pricking and pricking at my heart and and I look around and I just see what fallout is happening around those of us who are struggling with perfection. So can you tell um, our listeners, when you say the heart of perfection and and really what's driving you to write this book, give, give a good definition of that perfection. Sure. So, and the subtitle can help too, you know, how the saints taught me to trade my dream of perfect for God's. And that's really what 
what the book is about. Uh, you know, it's about this problem of perfectionism that I think we can all agree is a huge problem in our culture. We hear about it all the time. We see it on the headlines. We see studies showing millennials are the most perfectionist generation in history and their parents are perfectionists too and their kids are going to be too and, and on and on. So we know perfectionism is a problem. We know it drives everything from credit card debt, eating disorders, plastic surgery, filters on Facebook photos, you know, people refusing to take their vacation days, you know, and, and, and on and on and on, workaholism, you name it. And I think what, um, what I really wanted to dig into in the heart of perfection is the fact that this isn't just a problem out there. It's also a problem in our spiritual lives. And it's not a new problem. And I recognized this in my own life, specifically when I became a mom. And I saw that this perfectionism, which I hadn't really owned up to in the past. And if I had, I might have seen it as kind of a good thing. Yeah, I'm a perfectionist in my work. You know, I don't, I don't like typos. I don't like to make mistakes. Isn't that a good thing? Um, you import that into motherhood, you import it into your relationships, and it becomes a real problem. You have these impossible expectations for yourself, and then you're beating yourself up every time you fail, which if you're a mom who's actually with her kids at all, you're going to make lots of mistakes. So, And you're going to be noticing them because, you know, uh, kids have a way of pointing that out, not verbally, but simply they're little mirrors, and you just, you see your own uh, behavior and, and choices reflected in them. So you you're constantly kind of falling short of all these ideals you can have in your head about how, how wonderful you're going to do this thing um, when you get the chance. So there was that going into it. But as I began to peel away the layers of that, I recognized that this wasn't a problem simply put on me by the culture. This wasn't just something, you know, I inherited or, you know, maybe I had some perfectionist genes, some perfectionist patterns I saw in my family. And I go into some of that in the heart of perfection. But at its root, it's a spiritual problem because it stemmed from this image I had of God and what he expected of me, that he was expecting flawless of me, demanding it, and that his love was predicated on it. And that when I fell short, um, he really, you know, maybe loved me a little less or at least might if I kept if I kept it up, if I didn't keep all the balls spinning, you know, if I didn't mm -hmm. keep everything in the air. And so when I really faced that, which is one of those things that we all say, oh, I know God loves me unconditionally. But when you really think about, well, do you live like that? Do you really wake up every morning and believe that if you foul it all up, he still loves you just as much, you know, that he really is present in your weakness and that that's where he can reach you and reach others with you? Um so when I dug into that, I recognized all sorts of things from, you know, a distorted image of God that I think one way or another, we all get distorted images of God, no matter how great our parents are, how good our catechesis was. At some point or another, we start constructing our view of who we think God is. And he's almost always much uh, more like us than he is like mm -hmm. him, you know, petty and spiteful and whatever else. Um, I also started to recognize that perfectionism takes a lot of forms and they're very subtle. And so one reason the heart of perfection, you know, I, it kind of, it's almost like an onion. It goes deeper with every chapter. And so I'm, I'm you know, I'm glad to hear that you're taking your time with the first <laughs> few because it, it kind of does, uh, you know, I sort of wrote it in that way because each chapter I was led to sort of a new insight through the saints, through scripture, through my own life experience that, wow, there's another place perfectionism is hiding in my life. And so spiritual perfectionism can look like anything from perpetual discouragement, distraction, overcommitment, anxiety, fear, that's distorted image of God, this kind of harshness and hurry toward others and ourselves, impatience with our own faults, impatience with the faults of others and on and on and on. And so, um, 
I really started to recognize this is a huge problem. It's a problem for me. I see it all around me. And surprise, a lot of saints dealt with this before us. And that's why I call them the recovering perfectionist saints. And I highlight seven of them in the heart of perfection, along with in chapter three, the one you're on Mm -hmm. now, uh, my one heretic, who is an example of what happens when we don't let God heal our spiritual perfectionism and how much harm we can do in the world. Yes. In fact, I was, um, I kind of took 30 minutes to listen and I was laying in the pool listening by myself. I was like, this is my one, I'm just going to, this is my quote unquote self-care and I'm going to listen to this book. Um, and I'm glad there was no one else around me because I think I was talking out loud. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, knowing a little bit about my history, we were Calvinist for several years um, just before our conversion, our, I guess my reversion uh, back to the Catholic faith. And just that attitude of Jansenism and Calvinism and all, the, and, and I love, we love St. Francis de Sales. It's actually my husband's patron saint. Um, confirmation saint. And so, um, knowing what he dealt with, with this idea of predestination and really pre double predestination and, um, knowing our value and well, if I'm still sinning, then I must not be regenerate. And, you know, we just, all these things like over and over and, and this crazy cycle of, well, am I even really saved? And, um, and so anyway, I, I knew DeSales had that in his, in his repertoire. I knew that he had dealt with that. Uh, number one, I did not know, um, Jane de Chantal. I have to, I don't know why I just yeah. never got to know her as a saint, but Oh, she's, she's on my radar now. now. Yeah. And I, I've joked. I was like, if I believed in reincarnation, I think I'm St. Jane <laughs> uh, pre-sanctification. But, um, but, <laughs> but anyway, when you started hitting on Angelique and that unwillingness to hear to sales, tell her she's got to let go of that. Let go of these rigid ideas. And I, I, yeah, anyway, I was just like, amen, had my hands in the air in the pool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she was a real surprise to me. So I love Jane DeChantel. And like you, I didn't know much about her before, um, before researching this book. I'd heard about her years ago. I'd actually stayed at a visitation convent when writing the first chapter of my last book, My Sisters the Saints. And these sisters were so sweet. I was in Mobile, Alabama. They let me come, just some kind of strange Catholic writer who needed some time away to figure out what she was writing. And as I was leaving, this kindly nun gave me a book of um, Jane DeChantel. But, you know, I I asked what what she kind of known for, like Teresa of Avila, this mystical prayer, you know, Therese of Lisieux, the little way. You've got Joan of Arc battling, you know, for her country. Oh, well, she's known for gentleness. And I thought, oh, okay, well, Mm -hmm. you know. And I stuck that on the back shelf. I thought, well, I don't, I don't know. That's not very compelling. That's probably not like my natural, uh, you know, it's not what I aspire to. It sounds a little too much like, I don't know, um, mealy mouth, you know, not that interesting. And so um, as I began to research perfectionist saints and she kept showing up and then I, you know, dug more deeply into her relationship with Francis de Sales and they were best buds. I mean, he was their spiritual director. They collaborated together to found the visitation order. But before all of that, 
when she was living in the world, when she was this woman with four kids whose husband gets shot in a hunting accident when she's 29, the same week she gives birth to their fourth child. And here she finds herself widowed, four kids um, under six. You know, she's got this crazy father-in-law she's got to move in with who's having an affair with his housekeeper. And they've got all these kids by that affair and are all competing for the money that Jane was counting on to raise her kids. And everyone's yelling at her and she's driving herself crazy because she's trying to be perfect in God's eyes. And she's got this kind of misguided spiritual director who drives her even harder. So she's fasting all the time. She's getting too weak to get through her day. She's staying up all night. So she's sleep deprived, trying to take care of her kids. And she's living in this world that's all about, you know, looking good and finding the next husband. And she's literally on the brink of a nervous breakdown when she meets Francis de Sales, who then takes her on a whole different road. And he begins with this idea that, you know, you think God is looking at you with this incredible harshness, constantly shocked at your failures, but he's looking at you with love. And there's no way that you're falling or failing or weak that he didn't see already, that he's not already there ready to be with you in that. And so he begins to convince her to take a new way away from the holy heroics and and all the wild penances and all the, you know, um, all the external stuff and dig deeper into herself and accept the crosses that are coming her way every day, the little stuff that nobody sees, you know, be patient with that child who interrupts you. Um, Be kind to that in-law who's driving you nuts. You know, don't join in the gossip when your friends want to tell you how awful it is that you have to be around these people. When people judge you, misjudge you for taking care of sick, poor people in your home and they think that's going to make your kids sick and you're a bad mother. Instead of yelling at them, instead of ignoring them and being haughty, just gently explain what you're doing and why. It was this kind of stuff that he guided her toward. You know, get enough sleep, eat enough, but, you know, skip your favorite food once in a while. Don't skip all the meals, just skip your favorite food Mm -hmm. once in a while. And she goes on this road and over time she grows into this paragon of holy gentleness and they go on to found the visitation order, which is really predicated on that virtue. And um, she becomes this, this great spiritual leader in her own right. And what was interesting to me was to discover not only did all of that happen, but you know, well, Hey, you know, you got Francis de Sales as your spiritual director. Of course, if I had a doctor of the church hanging around every day, I could be a saint too. But what was interesting is, Angelique, same time period, same situation, Mm -hmm. same kind of desire for God, same love for God at a time. She also has Francis de Sales as a spiritual director. She also struggles with impatience toward herself and others with harshness, with perfectionism. She doesn't open her heart to God's healing grace. She doesn't consent to take this more hidden, gentle route to holiness. And as a result, she grows into a woman known as the mistress of Jansenism. And she's now remembered as a notorious heretic who led scores of people off the cliff of the Jansenist Mm -hmm. heresy, which was all about God's harshness and not his love. And so it's just a reminder that when we look at this problem of spiritual perfectionism, it's never just about you and your life. It's also about all those you're going to impact. And the impact, it may be one you don't even see. And we're going to impact them one way or another. Do we want to be like Jane leading them to Christ or like Angelique leading them off a cliff? Mm-hmm. It's such a good point. And, and as Catholics, we have this really huge responsibility with all the confusion um, in different theologies out there, some that are so rigid that um, you're afraid you're afraid to move the wrong way in mass. Or, I mean, and you even talk about that in your book. And I've I've absolutely come across Catholics like that. And um, or, or you have those. I love the story of the 
of you guys in Spain. And this is, you know, after you guys have have grown to, like you said, you were you understood your um, <laughs> why liturgy is so important and why that right. form is important. But this this line really, really stuck out. And I and I want people to hear this. This is so important. You're like, I don't know why. God, well, this is actually a different story. This was when you were, you went to like a, a charismatic mass and right. this priest was doing an altar call during the middle of mass, which is not liturgically correct. It's not in the rubrics. And um, you said, I don't know why God chose to use this moment, this priest, even who fell into scandal to change me, but he did that is so important for us to hear when we're so worried about the mass being perfect, our lives being perfect, when really God redeems everything. And this is something I probably say on every single episode, <laughs> God redeems everything. And my spiritual director, director tells me every month when I go to confession, give Jesus your failures because he redeems even those he get, give him your sins. He redeems even those. And why does God use these moments that are outside of the quote unquote rubrics of our church? I don't know, but he loves us enough to do so. Mm-hmm. He's, he's ruthless, you know, <laughs> he'll stop at nothing to reach our hearts. And um, yeah, that, that story was, um, it was just always kind of a puzzle to me because I had this profound experience and it, I, I wasn't, I didn't know enough about the liturgy or anything else to know that it was sort of uh, n- not really how things are supposed to be done technically, but you know, there was this altar call and I don't know why I'm not that kind of person, but there I was felt just compelled to go to the front and felt really connected to Jesus in that moment. And it had a profound and lasting effect on me. And yet later, as I mentioned in the story, this priest, you know, he hit the newspapers, big scandal about him. I got to know more about the mass and why, you know, an altar call right around the community, <laughs> you know, didn't, didn't quite follow what we're supposed to do. So uh, none of this is to say that those aren't important, that, oh, it doesn't matter if our clergy is holy. Oh, it doesn't matter if we have a reverent mass or, a, or one that's just totally, you know, um, irreverent, whatever. Um it's simply to say that we have to be careful when we say, well, God can't reach me here. God couldn't be acting, you know, in that circumstance because that isn't how I expected it to go. It doesn't mean you run around and then let, let me try to just, you know, find the kookiest liturgy I can. Or You know, mm-hmm. um, you know I think, though, so, he is willing to reach us wherever he can reach us. And sometimes he reaches us in unexpected places through unexpected people. And the problem with perfectionism and in chapter three, I'm specifically describing a form of spiritual perfectionism that I call spiritual elitism, that sense that I know the answers and you don't. And so there's nothing I can learn from you. The problem with that is it, it starts to kind of become our own show and we kind of know how it's going to go. And we know the answers and we don't really need anyone else because there's really nothing for the Holy Spirit to teach us because we've kind of figured it all out. And again, I'm not talking about doctrine, who cares about doctrine, nothing like that. We, of course, need to respect the teachings of our church, you know, stay true to scripture and, and, and to the catechism and all the rest of it. But um, that's not to say that every once in a while, God won't use someone completely unexpected to reach out and touch us and just let us just remind us that he's in charge and he's got more to teach us. And until the day he dies, there's going to be 
somewhere new he wants to stretch us and something more he wants to teach us. We never have it all sewn up, no matter how well we memorize the catechism or scripture or anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and thank you for pointing that back out, because it is important that no, that that we don't that my words don't lead somebody to believe that all that other stuff doesn't matter because that's why I'm Catholic. (laughs) It does matter. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, um, oh, and then I just lost my train of thought, of course. Um, So in the book, when you're talking about that spiritual elitism, I would definitely say as a Calvinist, I related to that. Mm-hmm. And um, and and those who are in a more elitist, uh, rigid form of their faith, whatever their denomination is, it's off-putting. And we're supposed to be loving and open to others so that we can share the gospel. And it's so hard not to judge other people's journey, but we just can't. <laughs> Um, and, and, and that spiritual elitism will absolutely walk us down that path. And my dad has always said, you know, we are bound by the sacraments, the sacramental system, but God is not. And so we giving God that reverence and not trying to box him into, in, in a Catholic version in the sacramental system. Right. And I, I think it can also, uh, affect us when our, Life of faith does become one of perpetual criticism, which is, this is, again, I mean, it's something I've struggled with, so I'm not, I'm th- not throwing stones at anyone here. I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else. And this is a big problem around, you know, when we're dealing with scandals, like we have been in the Catholic Church, especially in the United States, especially in the last year, it's, it's very easy to just, oh, can you believe it? Look at this and look at this and ah, you know, and um, you, you got to look at reality. Uh, none of this is about being Pollyannish and just, I don't care what's going on. Everything's roses everywhere I look. But it is about saying that I am going to protect the joy that the Holy Spirit has given me, that gift of joy. I'm going to cultivate that joy, and I'm going to put some distance between myself and those people, situations, and habits that leach my joy and lead me into sin. And if a sin that I'm battling is this tendency toward criticism or complaining or judging, then I'm going to avoid those situations where that flares up, at least until I get enough strength where I can be in those situations and not fall. So, you know, uh, a lot of times this means we don't need to follow every twist and turn of every news story. If the news is making us angry and we're getting upset and we can't do anything about it anyway, you know, turn it off and pray. You know, it can be the same with social media. It can be the same with a gossipy friend. You know, I love you, but I can't be around you that much because I can't seem to not fall into that when I'm with you. And and whatever it is, um, I think we have to be willing to be radically devoted to Jesus and to this journey toward him, toward holiness, even when it means making choices that maybe not everybody has to make, but they're the ones we have to make, at least for a time. And that was, I think, the big downfall of Angelique. You know, she started out on fire for Christ. She had a real genuine conversion experience when she was 16. She had had a, a life up to that point. And, you know, I'll, I'll save all the details for uh, readers of mm-hmm. The Heart of Perfection. It's, it's quite a sordid story how she got to be the abbess. You know, she was appointed yeah. at age seven and, you know, talk about church corruption. But right. at six, 16, she has a genuine experience of Jesus and she's connected. She has that personal relationship. 
And she falls in love with the church and she wants to reform it. And for a time she does. But gradually her criticism, her contempt for those who don't get it like she gets it, her, her disgust with those who are complacent while she's on fire gradually erodes her joy. And she finally reaches a place where there isn't joy anymore. It's all condemnation and judgment. And then it's no longer really the Catholic church that she's in. It's no longer really Jesus she's worshiping. It's kind of the church of Angelique and who's in or out based on Angelique or her ideology. And really ideology and a a heresy Mm -hmm. replaces the real faith for her. And we may say, well, that would never happen to me. But In a smaller, more subtle way, it can happen, and I think it does happen, and I think it's very much a real and present danger for those of us who are faithful Catholics living in a very hostile secular culture in a church riddled with a lot of corruption is, you know, that is very much a road that we can go down if we're not careful, and that's why we want to pray for our leaders. We want to be honest and, and face up to whatever problems are there, do whatever we can to deal with them, but never forget that this is all not resting on our shoulders. And if we lose our joy and we lose our faith, we won't be any good to anyone. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I feel like we have probably really identified that problem. And I've had like, you know, a myriad of confessions here now <laughs> on the podcast. Um, nobody's going to listen to my show ever again. And there's my heart of perfection right there. So, um, um, so you talk about needing... I think it's actually DeSales who says we grow more in holiness when we focus on God's love than um, on ourselves or our sin or our failures. And this this idea, we hear it all the time, you know, just focus on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Uh, focus on God's love. What are some tangible ways? What could, when we hang up on this um, interview, our, our listeners hit stop when we're done with this interview, what are some really tangible ways that we can actually do that? Well, I think a, a lot of the book, a lot of the Heart of Perfection is my attempt to answer that. And, and so some of the other chapters go into some of these. Um, um, the next one, in fact, is Alan Alphonsus Liguori, who struggled with scrupulosity a lot. And a lot for him getting over that fearful uh, obsession with his own sinfulness and what he needed to fix in himself. A lot of his breakthrough came when a bishop told him to take a second look at his image of God, stop modeling it on what he had was a very harsh father and, and rather on the heavenly father that Jesus reveals in the gospel. So for Alphonsus, that looked like uh, carrying the Bible around with him and constantly underlining and writing in his notebook passages about God's love every day for years until his image of God truly was healed. And he wasn't ever completely free of scruples. It was uh, deeply embedded in his personality, and it flared up here and there after that. But he really did change his image of God, which then changed his ministries, which that went on to touch countless lives for Christ. So that sense of being in God's Word and looking for His reassurance and, and making that a point of doing that. We've already mentioned cultivating joy, and I think there are some really tangible things we can do there. I mean, again, I think we could all use less screen time, a little more time outdoors, a little more time with our loved ones. You know, the less we can be living in the future or past and the more we can live in the present where God is, you know, and that, that takes a lot, there are a lot of different ways to try to cultivate that, but that's a huge piece of it. Um, another chapter I, I wrote was on uh, St. Benedict of Nursia and balance this 
idea that came from a guy who was actually very driven at one point in his life, but, but arrived at this deep biblical balance, this sense that we don't try to um, deny our limits, ignore our limits, constantly challenge them, but sometimes just accept our limits, accept that God is in our limitations, that he's meeting us in our weakness. And a big part of this for me in terms of uh, concrete daily habits has been to say when I recognize that I screwed something up and it happens all the time, you know, my, my original response was always either rationalization, oh, it wasn't that bad, or ignoring, okay, I didn't, I didn't really do that, or oh my gosh, I can't believe I did it, and on and on, I'm going to you know, punish myself for the rest of the day for that. And what I've really tried to do more, thanks to these saints and what they've taught me, and I'm not perfect at it yet, you know, still a work in progress, is, is turn in the midst of those moments. And we all have them, and we have them all day long, and, and give it over to Jesus right away. I'm sorry, I, I, I just did that again. <laughs> I, I find myself falling into this trap of this kind of thinking, or, I, you know, I was harsh there, or I said something I shouldn't, or I, whatever it is. And immediately recognizing the sin, but also receiving the mercy. And the two have to go together, because I think what can be so hard about facing our faults, and I think it's part of the reason we get into the perfectionist trap of denying them or rationalizing them or trying to white knuckle through them in the first place is because we're not sure that mercy is really there for us. But it not only is there, that's precisely where God stretches us and where he comes into our lives more fully. And I've seen that even in my own life, just those little moments of turning to him right in the midst of a weakness that I've spotted in myself. Instead of denying the weakness or getting mad at myself, but turning to him, taking the focus off myself, even just a whispered prayer, even just a prayer in my heart, it really can turn things around in a, in a quiet way, but it can add up to a really different kind of day and different kind of week. And I think over time, maybe a different kind of life. Yeah, because you, you talk about how it's actually, you think you're in control, but you are being controlled. And so right. what has what your first three chapters have led me to do is to go back to a prayer that I used to pray when we first went through our conversion because we were persecuted and, you know, they thought we were now going to hell and all those good, you right. know, lovely things, um, <laughs> you know, is the litany of humility. Right. Because in in the book, and correct me or elaborate on what I'm, I'm going to say is... You know, understanding the difference between the world's perfection and God's perfection. What does God think is perfect? And right. and re really, I, I wrote it on my mirror, and it said, "God's perfection equals humility." And it's mm. knowing that we can do nothing without His grace. Right. Nothing without His grace. I mean, we can do a lot of things without His grace, but they don't look so good and they don't feel so good. And, and we aren't walking in that, that gift of joy that, that you've mentioned. Right. And they don't bear fruit. Ultimately, they look flashy and good for a while, and then they fizzle and turn to nothing. And that's exactly right. And, and one of the themes throughout the heart of perfection. And one of the things I always like to get across because I do, you know, pretty early in the book is that I'm not talking about let's slack off. Hey, you're great just the way you are. You don't need to change. You're perfect. You know, um, you know, I, I understand where that message comes from. I think we all get a lot of messages from the culture that we're not enough. And so it's tempting to say, no, actually, you, you're perfect just the way you are. But the fact is, we're not. I mean, yes. I, I mean, hang out with me for a day and you'll find out how perfect I am. You know, <laughs> like, I, I, I think 
humility is often what he's aiming for rather than flawlessness with us. We want flawlessness, but a lot of times I think what God wants from us is humility to say, okay, I have this flaw and I'm working on it and God's working on it. But in the meantime, I'm going to love him and serve him and I'm going to admit it. And I'm going to use that to turn to him. Because remember, if we were flawless, we would need him. We wouldn't turn to him and we wouldn't lean on him. So um, I think it's important to remember that giving up perfectionism is not about giving up the universal call to holiness. It's not about becoming a slacker. It's not about winking at sin and acting like it doesn't matter anymore. It's almost the opposite. It's saying, yeah, now I can face my sin because I no longer have to uh, pretend it never happened. I no longer have to justify myself. I can just say, yeah, I got something to work on, but I know God is there. I know he's got my back. I know he'll always be with me. I know he's not going to give up with, give up on me. And I know he's not appalled at my weakness, not even, you know, when I'm appalled at my weakness, it, it's not surprising to him, you know? And so we are still aiming for perfection, but it's a totally different kind of perfection. It's the kind we see referred to in scripture. It's the kind we see modeled in Jesus. It's gospel perfection. And it's the kind these recovering perfectionist saints, you know, steered away from the worldly perfectionism, aimed toward gospel perfection. And it's a whole different, it's a whole different ballgame. And it's all about surrender and genuine freedom. And it's got almost nothing to do with the world's expectations of us, which is why it's so freeing. And why at the same time, as we move toward that gospel perfection, we may not look all that impressive to anyone else, because it's not about impressing the world anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, and I really appreciate that you did that. And you did it so early in the book, talking about now I'm not telling you, you get to fall into licentiousness. You don't get to just say, Oh, it's fine. Jesus loved me. He died on the cross. And it's all good. That <clears throat> is not what you were saying. And I really appreciate that. Because in our secular world, and even in, in Christendom, because we have so many ranges and denominations, um, Typically, you can either be so rigid or you can just be like, well, Jesus died on the cross. And it's it's that middle ground. It's that both and. And right. yes, we are still supposed to work. Oh, I'm going to use that word. Work towards perfection all by God's grace. Right. And um, understand that he did still die on that cross and receive his mercy all by God's grace. And um, understanding that middle road is so difficult, but so imperative. And that's why the teachings of the church are so beautiful and, and, and reading about the saints. And, and again, you're using that word recovering perfectionists. And even as DeSales says about um, it's a process, <laughs> it's a journey it doesn't happen overnight and you need to be patient with others, but most of all, you need to be patient with yourself. That's right. And that it's really about not striving toward perfection, but surrendering because God is the one ultimately who does the perfecting. You know, our job is to open our hearts to him and let him get to work. And, you know, the way he does that is probably not going to be exactly how we pictured it. And it's certainly not going to be how we choreographed it. And so that's where the real journey is one of trust and of opening our hearts to him and saying, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to let you have your way in my life and it might not follow my game plan. And I'm going to trust yours is even better. I love that. I don't think we could end on a better note than what you just said. It's not about striving. It's about surrendering. 
And that's really what your book is about. And I cannot wait to get into the next few chapters and into the end. And maybe I'll just ask you to come back and we can talk about the other (laughs) (laughs) chapters. But, um, but yeah, this, thank you so much for writing the book because you were really open and transparent and relatable. Are you the voice on Audible? Yes, that's me. I got to do my own this time. Well, I love that because the inflection in your voice, it matches. Like I could feel your emotion. I could feel the intensity and it really helped me connect to you as an author. Oh, great. Yeah. So I'm I'm so glad you were able to do it. Um, Now I feel like you've just been talking to me for about a week. And so... (laughs) You're sick of me by now. <laughs> no, not at all. If you were closer, we'd be hanging out on a regular Having basis. Having our coffee, right? <laughs> yes. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Colleen, thank you so much for sharing with me and our listeners and, and hearing the call of the Lord to give up perfectionism and then to write the book and and just to to be honest with us and and encourage us that we can to experience the freedom that um, he is giving you through your journey. Oh, well, you're welcome, Becky. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Thriving in the Trenches. I have hope that it will have encouraged you in your journey and that you will know the love of God even more intimately. Please share this podcast with a friend on your social media pages or leave a review in iTunes. You are welcome to join me on our Instagram or Facebook group where we can grow in friendships. Thanks for coming. This is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.